Turn in our Bibles to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 21 this morning. If you're here this morning and you're without a Bible, just raise your hand. There's men coming up the aisle right now, and they'd love to hand you a Bible. And we like everyone to not only hear the Word of God, but to read it. It's a powerful book and uh, powerful to see with our own eyes also. And they'll get one into your hands. Sunday mornings, we're looking at the life and the ministry of Jesus in chronological order. And so we come to, a, as always, a beautiful section of Scripture and a beautiful revelation of Jesus and also uh, of his heart. And so chapter 21, uh, beginning in verse 12, and I'll read through verse 17, but we're actually going to uh, skip what we covered last week in this whole chronology and, and finish out the chapter today. So, um, and I'll talk about that in a moment. So chapter 12, uh, chapter 21, verse 12. Then Jesus went into the temple of God and he drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And so those of you who love animals, you'll notice he didn't overturn the cages holding the doves, but the seats of those who were uh, selling them. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. And then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, the children crying out in the temple to Jesus, saying, Hosanna, which means save now to the son of David. They recognize him as the Messiah. The response of the religious leaders was they were indignant. And they said to Jesus, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants you have perfected praise. And then he left them and he went out of the city to Bethany and he lodged there. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the great revelation of the heart of Jesus and the mind of Jesus that is found in this passage that we'll look at this morning. And we ask for a work of your Holy Spirit to take it off of the page, all of these verses, and give them, Lord, build them into a living place in each one of our lives. We ask that of you, while, Lord, we bring to all of this the want to of understanding everything he taught and understanding the lessons behind all that he did today. Teach us, Lord, we pray, about our Savior. And we ask it in his name, in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. This morning I want to study a little bit larger section of Scripture than we're used to going through on the Sunday mornings. And I want to look at verses uh, 12 through 17, which we've just read, and then from verse 23 all the way through to the end of the chapter, because this entire section of Scripture constitutes a, a running exchange or dialogue between Jesus and the Jewish religious leaders of, of his day. And in this exchange, Jesus says progressively uh, several very, very important things to them that give us great, great insights into how he saw things, not only 2,000 years ago, but how he sees things uh, even today. There's nothing new under the sun. I mean, everything that was happening in those days is happening today also. In verses 12 through 17, Jesus cleanses the temple, and some of you may know and some of you may not realize that this is the second time that he did it in his public ministry. Very early in, in his uh, public ministry, one of the first things he did was to go to the temple and do almost exactly what he did here, and that is to cleanse the temple, to drive out all of this nonsense that was going on there. It's fascinating to realize that he wasn't content to do it one time, but now with just his crucifixion somewhere between uh, three, four days away, in his final actions before the cross, he once again goes into the realm of the temple, specifically in the court of the Gentiles on the Temple Mount, and he begins to clean out all of these things that were uh, very, very troubling uh, to him. Jesus had done this exactly three years earlier in his ministry, but obviously 
what he had done and why he had done it and the rebuke that he had delivered to the religious leaders at that time didn't get any traction. They completely ignored what that meant and what he said to them in the, in the rebuke and all. And despite his, his warnings at the time, they made no reforms. They just went right back to uh, business as usual, and business as usual was money. Now clearly there is something that about the, what these religious leaders had turned the temple of God into and thus had turned the worship of God into that really, really displeased Jesus. In fact, it filled him with a righteous anger. Whatever they're doing here, it's an affront to him. It's an affront to his holiness. It's an affront to his character. It's an affront to everything that's in his heart and his mind that he knows is true about his heavenly Father and to be true about heaven itself. And essentially what was going on here were the religious leaders were ripping people off in, in the name of God. And whenever somebody rips somebody else off in the name of God, it's not just the person who gets a black eye or their reputation is tarnished, but God gets a black eye too. Because when people, especially with religious leaders, when they think a religious leader claims to represent uh, God or represent the Lord, then they look at, at those religious leaders and however, uh, whatever their actions are, whatever their teaching are, they ought, people in general automatically assume that that's what their God is like and they're properly representing their God and also his his teaching, and so it's, it's re what they were doing there really was giving God's reputation a black eye. The law of Moses required that uh, every year that a, a, an individual Jewish male or uh, a family was required to offer a sacrifice, an animal sacrifice to the Lord, to bring it to the temple to have the priest offer it, uh, to the Lord. And they were also required, every Jewish male over the age of 20 was required to give a, ha a Jewish coin, a half shekel, into the treasuries at the temple uh, in order to support uh, the maintenance of the temple, the support of the priests and the Levites that were serving there, and all of the whole center of worship of God that was supposed to be occurring uh, at the temple. And what the religious leaders of the day had done is they had stepped in and begun to grossly overcharge people uh, related to these sacrifices. So ultimately, people couldn't even bring a lamb from home somewhere else in Israel and have it sacrificed. They would find some flaw in it and then always force people to buy an animal that was sold by the you know, in the booth or whatever that was where the prophets went to the religious leaders. And those animals were sold at, at a grossly overpriced. And so they're gouging the people. The problem that the Jewish male had coming to worship the Lord, and this is the time of the Passover, and uh, so you've got hundreds of thousands, and Josephus tells us over a million people in Jerusalem at that time, and, and so all these pilgrims, all these people that love the Lord, the men couldn't come and offer that half shekel to the Lord. A shekel is a Jewish coin. And so what they did in their everyday business, they used Roman coins. So they would have to change a Roman coin into shekels to offer the half shekel. But rather than just doing a flat across-the-board exchange rate, the religious leaders set up these money-changer tables and they made the exchange rate something, again, that was just obscene and wrong. It just left a bad taste in everybody's mouth. I just got ripped off trying to worship God here. And, and so this is the kind of thing that they were doing and they were making a fortune off of this by gouging God's people in, in this way. And again the, again, the problem with all of this is they were dragging God's name and his reputation into all of this. They're claiming to represent the Lord, and, they're, and as a result, they're really dirtying God's reputation in the world. It had just become a terrible, terrible misrepresentation of the Lord. And so what Jesus did is he went in and he overturned the tables of the money changers, and you can almost picture it in your mind. Nobody did this. 
And evidently it's happening in the court of the Gentiles, which was the furthest court. It was a courtyard up on the top of the Temple Mount, but the furthest court from the Holy of Holies. And so they had set all this stuff up, all these pens of animals and all these tables with money changers. And there's huge numbers of people, as I said, coming into Jerusalem at this time. And uh, they had basically crowded all the Gentiles out. They didn't have any room to even stand or try to find out more about God, as we'll see in just a moment. And so this was this whole thing that they were uh, doing. And Jesus, he, he t- turns the tables upside down and he declared that they had turned the house of God into a den of thieves. They had taken the holiest place in Judaism by God's intent until the coming uh, of, of Jesus. And, and they had taken it and turned the temple from a place to worship God to, as Jesus said, a den of thieves. What's a den of thieves? A den of thieves, if you've ever watched a Western movie, a den of thieves is where a bunch of crooks take the loot that they just stole from the people and they find some cave somewhere and the thieves divide the loot up between themselves. And when God looked at the end of the day, all that money that was coming in, and then at the end of the day, the accounting department there at the temple overseen by the religious leaders, unbelievable amounts of money coming in. And when God looked at it and said, I don't see any kind of a religious system. I don't see anything that looks like me. I see thieves dividing their loot every single day. And that, that's how God viewed the, the, whole, the whole thing. And, all, and, and when Jesus cleared all of it out, verse 14, now there was some room for some Gentiles to get up onto the Temple Mount, and those that needed healing came up there. Jesus healed them. The children began to sing praises to the Lord. Now this feels like what it, what it really ought to be like. And I think one of the lessons we learn here is we see Jesus' respect for what the Temple was intended to be and his disgust over what it had been turned into, the worship of God had been turned into, not by the world and not by a bunch of pagans, but by a bunch of religious leaders whose hearts had drifted very, very far away from God. Notice a day or two later, in verses 23 through 27, I'll read it in a moment, but Jesus then returned to the temple where he confronted, was confronted by the highest religious leaders who challenged his authority uh, for what he had done in cleansing uh, the temple. And so we're told, verse 23, and when he had came into the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people, they confronted him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? And Jesus answered and said to them, I also will ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I likewise will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, John the Baptist, where was it from? Was he a part of what heaven was doing, or from men? And they reasoned among themselves, saying, Well, if we say that he was from heaven, then Jesus is going to say to us, Then why didn't you believe him? But if we say from, that he was only about men and there was no divine authority about his ministry, uh, we fear the multitude, uh, for they all count John as a prophet. They'll probably kill us right on the spot. And so they answered Jesus and said, We don't know. It's a lie. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. They're asking him by what authority he cleansed that temple. Who gave him the authority to do it? Who gave him the permission to do it? What credentials did he have for doing so? What degrees? What diplomas? What formal training did he he have? What permission slip from man, and especially religious man, to do it? Whose approval did he have? Well, Jesus certainly had not received authorization from them because they're very upset about it. Jesus responded to their question by revealing to them that his authority did not come from man, but that it came from a far greater source, that it was a God-given authority. Because he agreed to tell them the source of his authority if they would just simply publicly tell him their opinion of the ministry of John the Baptist. Now, this, all this stuff that's going on now here, this is public. 
You notice in verse 23, this is happening in the area of the temple to pose this question and confront Jesus. They have interrupted his teaching in the area of the temple to confront him in this way. There is an audience that is watching all of this and listening to everything that is is happening here. And so Jesus said, I'll be glad to tell you where my authority comes from if you will tell me uh, who was was the authority behind John the Baptist's ministry. Well, immediately they formed a a holy huddle, we're told there, and uh, they began to consider uh, Jesus' demand of them, and they realized that they were trapped. They realized that if they declared that John's ministry was from men, that God wasn't behind it, they were in danger of being torn limb uh, to limb from limb by, by the, the crowd that was around them because all of the people recognized and any honest person recognized it, the fact that John the Baptist's ministry honored God and, and it was uh, supernatural in its origin. They recognized, though, that if they declared that they believed John's ministry to be from heaven, which is what they should have done, then Jesus would have just simply said, well, you want to know what my authority is. Why didn't you just believe what John told you? Because John had clearly pointed the religious leaders of the Jews and all people to believe in Jesus as the Messiah, but also, even more so, to believe in Him as the Son of God. And John the Baptist was essentially declaring to people that Jesus' authority, even when He stepped in and what He did violated the authority and the man-made traditions of these religious leaders, that Jesus operated under a higher authority, and that is the authority of heaven, the authority that was His uniquely as the very Son of God. In John chapter 1, John John the Baptist declared concerning Jesus, and I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. So Jesus' answer to their question is His authority came from heaven as the Son of God just as John the Baptist had declared to them years before. They had had John the Baptist answer on this issue for years. The problem wasn't that they couldn't get good information on Jesus. The problem is they didn't want to believe uh, the witness of heaven related to Jesus. They didn't want to believe what had been spoken to them. And so they responded. uh, uh, And and so they responded to Jesus' question with a simple refusal to answer. They said, we don't know. And Jesus, keeping his promise to them, he refused to answer uh, their question if they refused to answer his. And so instead... He gives them a parable, which we'll read in a moment. I think one of the lessons here is that here we see the authority behind all of Jesus' action and his words. And the authority is the authority of heaven, the authority that comes with being the very Son of God. Now, why is that important? Again, In this particular section of Scripture that we find ourselves in, I know that I've been in a a vein for a a little bit of time on the Sunday mornings, but it's only because the Gospels themselves stay in this vein as the cross of Christ approaches. And the reason that this is important to recognize Jesus' authority is, again, the overwhelming majority of people who will come to know Christ today, will come to know Him and be forced to come out of a religious system in order to do so. And they will be forced, in many cases, to come out of religious systems that claim to be Christian. So what do you do? When you come here into a room like this or into a church and all of a sudden you're reading things 
in the Bible that you're seeing Jesus say, it's right there in the red in your Bible, and yet it's completely different from the system that you belong to and the religious leaders of that system. The point that Jesus is trying to get through is you need to believe Him. He has the highest authority for representing heaven and God the Father, and in your search to know God, He has the unique credentials of being the Son of God. His authority is an authority that is greater than religious men. It is greater than even the most highly esteemed religious men. And so no religious man or religious system that professes to be Christian should ever put us at odds with Jesus and we should never elevate their teaching above the word and the teaching of Jesus when they conflict. Now notice the parable that he speaks to them in verse 28. He said to them, what do you think? A man had two sons and he came to the first and he said, son, go, work today in my vineyard. And he answered and he said, I will not. But afterward he regretted it and he went. And then he came to the second and he said, likewise. And he answered and he said, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? And they said to him, rightfully, the first. And Jesus then said to them, Verily, verily, I say to you that tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. You could have heard a pin drop after he said that, trust me. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but tax collectors and harlots believed him, and when you saw it, you did not afterward relent and believe the message of John. And so he uses this opportunity now to ask them a question in the form of a parable, a parable known as the parable of the two sons. And so a father has two sons, and uh, he commands them both to go out into the vineyard to work. He's met with two different responses. The first son says, no, I'm not going, it's rebellion. But after he reconsiders it a little bit, he heads out and he obeys his father. The second son knows how to give lip service. He says, sure, Dad, I'll head out there and do it. And then he never went out there. And Jesus asked the religious leaders a simple question, which of the two did the will of his father? They correctly answered uh, the first And then Jesus gave them a very pointed and again a very public application of the parable to these religious leaders. He was saying, in other words, the worst sinners in the world are going to enter into heaven before them. Because in the Jewish mind, and certainly with the Jewish religious leaders, God had no interest in a harlot. He had no interest in in a tax collector. That's called white-collar crime. Not only were they not going to get into heaven in the minds of the Jewish religious leaders, God had zero interest in them. They couldn't get into heaven if they wanted to. The only people that had a sure place in heaven in their thinking was them and other people just like them. So when Jesus comes on the scene here and and you've got this group of not only religious leaders, but the very highest religious leaders, and and Jesus tells them that they are in a greater danger of not ending up in heaven than the worst out-and-out sinner, it was shocking to them. Jesus cracks me up a lot of times. It's probably something wrong with me. He could not have chosen a comparison or a statement to make to them that could have been more offensive to their self-righteousness than the statement that he made to them. Now, he didn't do it because he gets some kind of a perverse pleasure out of it. Now you're talking about me and not God. Jesus is still fishing. He is still trying every way he knows how to break through even their hardness, so they will come to understand who He is and put their faith 
in him. I mean, when he takes and tells them, listen, harlots and tax collectors are getting into heaven before you folks get into heaven. You, you talk about tension in a religious environment. Every eye is on Jesus and these religious leaders at the moment. Every ear is just turned for what it is that's going to, going to come next. And Jesus supplies them with a reason that harlots and tax collectors were going to get into heaven before them in verse 32. Because the religious leaders were like the second son. They gave the appearance of accepting John's message in his ministry, but they refused to do what John the Baptist had called people to do. And what had he called them to do? Repent of your sin and put your faith in Jesus as the Son of God and as your Savior. Salvation is not based upon living a little bit better than all of the other sinners in the world. The Bible says that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Whether I'm a tax collector or whether I'm a harlot or whether I am a grand poobah, that's Flintstone talk, a grand poobah in a religious system. The assessment is still the same. We have all sinned, and that sin has separated us from a relationship with God. Do you realize that if you sit here today, and you don't yet know Christ, and you can legitimately look at the quality of your life, your morals, how you conduct yourself, and you can correctly assess that you live a more righteous life than 99.9% of the rest of the people in the world, even if that assessment were true, you still need to be forgiven of your sins and you still need to be saved just like everyone else. We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. One sin disqualifies us from heaven. One sin disqualifies us from a relationship with God. It doesn't matter if we miss heaven by a hundred miles or if we miss heaven by inches. It's still to miss heaven. If you ever go to a circus and you see the trapeze artists and they've got the swings and everybody, one thing you never want to see if you're like one of those people and you're swinging out there, the person that's supposed to catch you, you don't want to see them using like hand lotion <laughs> prior to the big swing. Oh, I hate it when I do that. But they're good. one person launches off the one swing and heads out and does a triple somersault and all and the other person's to catch him. There's no net under there. That's why we're all watching it and it's on YouTube and, and it's on the gory station on TV, you know. It's, somebody got a camera out and viewed it. It doesn't matter if I miss that other person's hands by three yards or I miss it by a quarter of an inch, I still die. The consequence of missing is... The, is is still the same. God had called the religious leaders to put their faith in, in Christ and He had used John the Baptist to do that and they had re refused to do that while the tax collectors and the harlots had done that. In John chapter 3, this is what John the Baptist said, not to some mixed multitude, but to the religious leaders uh, themselves concerning Christ. He said, he who, he who comes from above is above all. And he who is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all, speaking of Jesus. And what he has seen and heard, that he testifies. And no one receives his testimony. And he who has received his testimony has certified that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God. For God does not give the Spirit by measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. And he who does not believe in the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God abides on him. And so salvation isn't based on having a religious background or a lot of theological knowledge or having, uh, you know, attained to very high positions or levels in some kind of a religious uh, institution, but it's based on putting our faith in Christ. 
And everyone has to do it. Religious, harlot, white-collar, crook, because we, again, have all fallen short of the glory of, of God. And so the lesson here is that everyone needs to be saved. But I need to do more than know that. I have to actually act upon that knowledge and put my faith in Christ. Now notice in verse 33, Jesus said here another parable. There was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard and he set a hedge around it. He dug a wine press in it and he built a tower. And he leased it to the vine dressers and he went to a far country. Now when vintage time drew near, he sent his servants to the vine dressers that they might, re that they might receive uh, its fruit. So it's harvest time and he was owed a certain amount of that. And the vine dressers, these hired servants, they took his servants that he sent and they beat one, they killed one, they stoned another. So he sent more servants and uh, other servants more than the first. And, and they did the same thing to them again. And then last of all, last of all, there's no one else coming after this. Last of all, he sent his son to them saying, they will respect my son. But when the vine dressers saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and this, all of this will be ours, and seize his inheritance. And so they took him, they cast him out of the vineyard, and they killed him. And therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, Jesus said, what will he do to those vine dressers? These religious leaders, they're only thinking of it in the physical realm. They're outraged. He will destroy those wicked men miserably. I don't know what that means, but it sounds bad. <laughs> and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the, the fruits in their seasons. So the imagery is you've got a landowner who represents God the Father. You have a vineyard which represents the nation of Israel. You have a hedge around that vineyard which represents the law of Moses, which was the thing that kept the Jews distinct uh, as, as God's people in the world, kept them from being absorbed by everything around them in the Gentile world. The wine press represents the fact that God had raised the nation of Israel up in order to get fruit from them. They were intended to bear fruit and to bring pleasure to Him. The tower represents uh, God's protection of the nation of, of Israel and His care for them. The vine dressers represent the Jewish religious leaders, and the servants that were sent by the landowners who were continually abused by the vine dressers represent all of the prophets that God had sent to the nation of Israel all through their history who were abused by the nation of Israel, not by the Gentiles, but abused and stoned and oftentimes killed, not by pagan Gentiles, but by uh, religious people. And uh, so we think about Isaiah, who is believed to have been sawn in half. We think about the loneliness of Jeremiah's ministry, the difficulty of Ezekiel's ministry, one prophet after the other. This wasn't like something new in the history of, of the leadership within, within Israel that was claiming to represent God. This has been going on a long, long time. And, and so... This was the reception that God's prophets typically received from the Jewish religious establishment. And then finally, the landowner, God the, God the Father, he sends his son, Jesus, to them and, and declares, surely they will respect my son. But rather than respecting the very son of God, their desire for power is so great that they are willing to kill Jesus in order to hold on to it. And they aren't even flinching. It's stunning. What they have worked through in their mind to come to this place, planning and plotting the death of the Son of God, and, and not even thinking that they're in the wrong or any regret about it. I mean, they're just simply out of control. The parable continues to declare that these Jewish religious leaders were going to do what they did do, and that is to take Jesus outside of the city of Jerusalem and kill them 
him there, just as Jesus was crucified outside of the city of, of Jerusalem. And as the religious leaders are thinking about the parable solely on a physical level, Jesus asks them what the owner of the vineyard would do to these vine dressers. And when they just look at it on a physical level, I mean they are outraged. He will destroy those wicked men miserably, not realizing that they were doing the far more outrageous thing in what they were doing spiritually and planning in the death of, of Jesus. I mean, they have attained to a degree that no one in Jewish history had attained to. And in their plot to kill Jesus, they were engaging in a stunning act of rebellion and expression of pride and, and self-importance. And the glaring mistake that these, religious, or that these vine dressers in the parable make was to treat the son as if he had no father who would bring vengeance on them for treating their son, his son, in that way. And the glaring mistake that these religious leaders were making in their plan to crucify Jesus was to forget that he would have a heavenly father who would watch the entire scene and that will one day rise up and judge what was done to his son. Jesus said concerning the owner of the vineyard, when the owner of the vineyard comes, not if he comes, but when he comes, the most dangerous form that rebellion against God can take is rebellion that is clothed in religion. Religion gets away with murder. It gets away with actions and conducting itself sometimes in ways that if people were not hiding behind the veil of religion, I mean they would be caught and hung up far earlier than, uh, than, they, uh, than they are. I think that there's a great tendency in mankind to overlook and to excuse and to minimize rebellion against God as long as the rebellion takes the form of religion. But it doesn't work that way with God. And it's not how He sees it. There's a tendency on our part to look at religious people, and we should be respectful toward everyone, but religious people or religious institutions or people that belong to these things that sometimes are an absolute affront to God, leading people into eternal destruction and all of these different kinds of things and flexing their muscles for control over people and all of this, and no one will make a peep. No one will condemn the institution. No one will condemn the teaching. No one will condemn the actions. No one will take it and say, but how does that stand up against what the Word of God says? And religion gets cut a lot of slack, but it doesn't get cut slack in God's eyes. All that matters, whether it's in religion or in the secular world, is what does God's Word say and then how does what's happening out there, whether secular or religious, match the Word of God. And so Jesus here takes and, uh, and he, this rebellion that takes the form of religion, he stands up to it and, and he exposes it for what it is. One day... All rebellion against God. This is why Jesus standing up to it is so important. One day, all rebellion against God is going to be judged. Whether it's clothed in religion or whether it's clothed in sex, drugs, and rock and roll. For those of you who are a little bit older, wine, women, and song. 
All of it will be judged. Now let me close with this in verses 42 through 44. Jesus then said to them, Have you never read in the Scriptures? And that had to really bother them because they were the experts in the Scriptures or so they thought. But Jesus kept asking them, Have you never read in the Scriptures? You know, if you saw this verse, it would kind of temper what you believe over here. You're all in this, loaded up in this one extreme. And, and think about it in terms of what this passage says that brings God's balance to the situation. So he's always uh, bringing this up to them. And, he now, and so, have you never read in the Scriptures, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone this was the Lord's doing, and it was marvelous in our eyes. And therefore, Jesus said, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. And whoever falls on this cornerstone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. Jesus is quoting here one of the most beautiful messianic psalms in all of the Bible, Psalm 118. And it was a psalm that prophesied that when the Messiah came into the world, he would be rejected by the builders, that is, by the religious leaders of, of his day. But that their rejection by the religious leaders wouldn't change the fact that this Messiah was indeed the chief cornerstone and that his life and his ministry was a source of joy and celebration in heaven. When the Jews came, by and large, when they came to passages like this out of Psalm 118, it was unthinkable to them that, that they would uh, treat the Messiah when he came in the way that Isaiah 53 describes, Psalm 22 describes. A Psalm 118 described. So when they see this description of the Messiah and, and the abuse that he's going to face, the rejection that he's going to face, that he's going to end up not only dying, but dying a very painful death, they just simply ignored that passages. They did not allow that any place in their minds. It just, in their thinking, it could not happen. It is impossible for God to send us our Jewish Messiah and for us ever to treat him in that way. So they simply ignored the passages. And then they focused on all of the passages that spoke of the Messiah coming, establishing a kingdom, all of the celebration around that which spoke, speaks of Jesus' second coming. So they had like this gigantic, in terms of biblically, they had this gigantic strong right arm in their understanding of one side of what the Bible taught concerning the Messiah and this little, you know, skinny scrawny arm on the other side. I won't lift that up for your amusement. Uh, on the other side in terms of, of, of the suffering that he was going to face. And, and, and that was why they, they, they ignored it. All the religious leaders were doing in their rejection of Jesus as the Messiah was to further confirm the fact that he was the Messiah. Heaven is happy with Jesus. Heaven is very happy with Jesus. Heaven is thrilled with Jesus. Heaven knows he's the chief cornerstone. Heaven rejoices in the fact that he's the chief cornerstone. Whatever the opinion of religious men, in heaven's opinion is the only opinion that ultimately matters. Jesus here describes himself as the chief cornerstone. You look at that and you say, what does that mean? A cornerstone, that's a construction term. In those days they didn't pour concrete and all that to lay a foundation for a building. They found a good stone to make the cornerstone of the foundation. It was the most important stone in the building. Because they would put that cornerstone in the place and then in putting that in place they would measure every other stone that would be laid in the building off of that stone. Every stone in the rest of that house or the rest of that building had a personal relationship with the cornerstone. And because it was measured off of the cornerstone and because it had that relationship with the cornerstone, as a result, you had a building that was safe to walk into. 
If it wasn't related to the cornerstone and it wasn't measured off of the cornerstone, didn't have a relationship with the cornerstone, you had a building that wouldn't be square, it wouldn't be parallel, it wouldn't line up, you wouldn't want to walk into it. You'd have no confidence you could walk into it and be safe and sound. Jesus is that cornerstone. And what what a cornerstone was physically in building in those days, Jesus is to us spiritually. As we make Him the most important stone in our lives, the most important part of our lives, as we measure every part of our lives, and we make Him the most important stone in our lives by making Him our Savior and our Lord. But it doesn't just stop there. A cornerstone, having made Him my Savior and my Lord, then I need to measure my entire life off of that cornerstone. What comes out of my mouth, how I live my life, my actions, my thoughts, my motives, my deeds, everything, as I measure that off of that cornerstone, now you have a life that's solid. It can withstand the storms of life. It can withstand whatever gets thrown against it. You don't have to worry when we find ourselves in the middle of a trial. Is this thing going to make it through? Is this thing going to stand at the end of this storm? Because it's all tied back to Him. It's safe and sound. Our lives will withstand all of the storms of this life, all of this life in in its totality. So the cornerstone brought stability to a home. And Jesus is the cornerstone, brings stability to our lives. He holds the life together. And He gives us a model for our lives that if we follow that model, we'll never be ashamed of ever acting or speaking or living like Him. Everyone in this room and everyone in this world, Jesus is saying, as one of three relationships with the chief cornerstone, with Jesus. The first relationship that we can have is to join heaven in its assessment of Jesus. The fact that He is marvelous and that He is a marvelous Savior by putting our faith in Him. Or, in uh, verse 44, we can resist God's call in our lives to make Jesus our Savior. And, and then in resisting that, we can t- continue to live our lives, measuring our lives off of all these other models in the world or everybody else's wisdom. And all we'll end up doing to ourselves is, is doing further damage and breaking uh, to our own, our own lives. To live without Christ, even for a day, is to damage the heart, the mind, the soul, and the strength. You think about it today. Every single person who lives today, apart from an obedient relationship with Christ today, will pay a tremendous price on a physical level, on an emotional level, and on a mental level. Think about following the models and the cornerstones that are put before us all around this world. Think about the indoctrination of television and entertainment and the culture. Think about how many people who will today head out and do something out there where they will contract a disease because they have made someone other than Christ their model. How many men and women will be arrested today in the committing of crimes or violence against other people because Jesus is not their model, not their cornerstone. Something else is. Think about how many people will fry their minds. There's a tipping. These minds are fragile. There's a tipping point for the human mind. You can only put so much in there. And what's available today to put into a mind that can tweak it and send it spinning off for good or even just carrying the weight of the world and the problems of the world, when we're meant to allow God to do that and come under the shadow of His wing, it can cause people's minds to just just collapse like an egg, just collapse with the weight of it. And it's real. And it's true. It's a terrible price that's paid. 
for rejecting salvation and living apart from it. And sometimes it's that damage that's done that ultimately brings us to Christ. But why wait till the damage is done to bring us to Christ or any more damage done that needs, than needs to be done to get our attention? I was talking with someone this week and they don't attend the church and, and um, I'll just be another minute or so for those of you who are alarmed. Um, I was talking with someone and, and he said to me, he said, Damien, he says, I'm, I, I find myself slipping into depression and I've, I've never experienced that before in my life. And I said, well, tell me a little bit about that. What do you, how often is that happening? Is it happening every week or every month or every year? And, and uh, how, I mean, what triggers it? Do you, some, is there something that triggers you down into that? And then how long do you stay there? How, and then what pops you back out of it? And he said, well, that's about every, about every month or so. And, and, uh, and then and he said, well, I, I hold on during those handful of days that it's going on knowing that I'm going to pull out of the thing and, and uh, after a few days because that's just historically what the pattern's taken in my life. I said, well, what do you, what do you think's triggering this thing on, on you? And what's, what's going on here? He said, I don't know. He said, I think it's the life I live. He said, I go to work. I take care of my wife. And I watch the giants on TV. And he encapsulated his life just like that. Now, it wouldn't matter if the giants were in first place. That's a bad, that's a, that's a bad encapsulation of human life. And I said to him, and this is a man who knows better, I said to him, no wonder why you're depressed. I said, you are, you are meant, and you know, you are meant to walk with God. You are meant to obey God. You're meant to serve God. You're meant to make a difference on a daily basis for the expansion of the kingdom of God. Those are the things that will bring meaning and purpose and value and excitement to your life that these other things can never bring. And it's true. And there was a fellow just like that who's, who has damage being done to his soul, to his mind, because he's not walking with God and, and, and instead he's falling on that, that stone the third relationship that a person can have with the stone is to reject Jesus all the way through this life and then carry that rebellion into the life to come where all rebellion against God will one day be judged and crushed by Jesus himself. And no one wants to find ourselves there. If you're not a Christian here today, today's the day to become one. It's what life is all about. It's been what you've been made for is a relationship with God. And there are going to be men and women up in front immediately after the service. They're going to have a badge on that says prayers. You can identify them easily. And they'd love to pray with you to become a follower of Jesus today and begin a personal relationship with God. And if it means having to turn away from a religious system or a religious background that maybe your family has been invested in for generations or that you have thus far invested your whole life in, but it's contrary to what Jesus says in His Word. You need to give His Word the greater authority and come into the life that He has planned for you rather than that religious system or religious man or any person, even your mom or your dad. The most important thing is what is God calling us to do. Let's stand together and we'll pray.